So take your Bibles and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 8, page 557 in your church Bible. Ecclesiastes chapter 8. It was interesting this week, I, I didn't know this, but uh, Pastor Matt told me uh, this week that he had been praying for something, and unfortunately it was an unanswered prayer. He said that he'd been praying that the New England Patriots would face the Dallas Cowboys in the Super Bowl this year. Pastor Matt, misguided though he is, we love him, he's a New England fan, I'm a Dallas Cowboy fan. And he, uh, I don't know if that would have really been a good idea, actually. He was talking about the idea that we were going to have dueling sermons. He talked about maybe we watch the game together and then put that on YouTube. And, uh, well, thankfully that didn't happen probably. But that does remind me of Ecclesiastes. All is vanity. In fact, when I studied this text this week, I... I was thinking that for a, for a couple of hours, I thought maybe this book is prophetic. Maybe this is a prophetic part of Scripture, speaking directly to New York Jet fans. But I, I, maybe not. Anyway, we want to continue our series on Ecclesiastes. We've been looking at it. This is our third installment of this great book. Let me read to you, follow along as I read uh, the 12th verse in Ecclesiastes 8 through the first verse of chapter 9. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on the earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. And I commend joy. For man has no good thing under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one eye see sleep. Then I saw all the work of the God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. This is God's word. The book of Ecclesiastes is trying to show us that in a broken world, in the world of Ecclesiastes, there is a way for us to live well. That's what the writer is consumed by. And in this text, we are going to see four resources, four things that we need to believe and respond to that will help us live well in a broken world. So let's look at the first resource. First resource goes like this. We live in an Ecclesiastes world. Get used to it, all right? It's a broken world. You, get, you gotta have to understand that that's the way the world is. And notice what the writer does in two places in this text. He demonstrates why the world is so broken. Verse 16, we see the first one of these. He says, when I applied my heart to know wisdom, 
And to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one eye see sleep. What he's talking about is someone who's staying up all night trying to figure out what life is all about. Why is all these things happening to me? Why are these evil things happening to me? I don't understand. And someone loses sleep over that. Then he goes on in verse 17. Then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. We can't fully understand why this world is the way it is. It doesn't make sense. It's enigmatic. It's confusing. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. Some people say, well, I've got the secret to life. No, you don't. We don't understand it. It's enigmatic. It doesn't work right. It's confusing. That's what Matt talked about last week at, at, at length. And therefore, because life is enigmatic and confusing, it's a difficult live life to live. It's a difficult world to live in. But we need to understand that. We need to have the right expectation of what this world will be like. Now, there's another element to this uh, difficult world, and that's verse 14. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. In other words, there are good people and a whole bunch of bad things happen to them. That doesn't make sense to us. And then he goes on to say, there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. There's a lot of bad people, wicked people, and their life seems to go great. How how does that work? I mean, it seems like in other portions of the Bible, it says if you obey God, that'll be good. And if you disobey God, that won't be too good. But what Solomon says here in Ecclesiastes, he's saying sometimes the world works that way, but sometimes it doesn't. Good people have a disastrous life. Bad people seem to go from success to success. It makes no sense to us. And and, and the writer concludes by saying, I said that this also is vanity at the end of verse 14. What Ecclesiastes says over and over and over again, life is confusing, life is painful, life is fleeting, and life is terribly unfair. And here's our problem, right? I want to believe the world is different than that. I mean, when I was growing up, I mean, this is what I heard. I mean, I went to a Christian school. I was had Christian parents. I was told this. If you work hard and keep your nose clean, then, then, the, then life will go pretty well for you. That's what I was told. In fact, I was told in middle school, if you want to do anything, dream your dreams big. You can do anything you want to do. And I never made it to the NFL. They lied to me. The reality is... Sometimes life goes well, but the reality is, from Ecclesiastes, it says you live in an Ecclesiastes world, and that world is painful, fleeting, unjust, and confusing. And we need to believe this. We need to understand this, because one of the things that that happens to us is we think that we live in a non-Ecclesiastes world, where the good are blessed and the bad are punished, but we don't live in that world, and we get so undone when life doesn't work the way I thought it should. We're so surprised, we're so shocked, we're so confused, and yet we ought to to say, oh, well, this this is what the Bible said it would be like. We need to have a realistic view the biblical view of what life can be like under the sun, that's what Ecclesiastes is trying to give us. Now, uh, I remember when my, my kids were young, we, 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 we homeschooled our kids for a bit, and we, we, uh, my daughter was in the geography bee. 
And, uh, you know, we tried to prepare her for this. And the local chapter of the Geography B contest that my daughter was going to be in, she's a middle school student, there was this homeschool family that was legendary. They were a dynasty. They were the New England Patriots of the Geography B. Sibling after sibling would go and win year after year. And then they would graduate. Then they had another sibling come up. Their brother would win it all. Their sister would win it all. So we had very low expectations of this. But lo and behold, I remember my wife called me. I was at work and she said, Katie won. She won. And my first reaction was, we took down the dynasty. For the glory of God. Okay. We won. We broke through. This is amazing. And so the next year, now we have to defend the title. And now we're creating a new dynasty, the Troxel dynasty. And we prepared for it. And then right after I knew the competition was over, I called my wife and I said, how did it go? How did it go? And my wife says, well, uh, initially Katie won. I didn't hear the word initially. I heard Katie won. I was like, yes, we are the dynasty now. But then she, then she said, no, no, she, she initially won. I said, what do you mean she initially won? Well, we got to the end of the competition, my wife says, and Katie answered the question in the final round. And the judge there that was there from the geography people said she won. They put a medal, okay, a medal around my daughter's neck. She greeted the well-wishers and the crowd that adoringly now realize this is the new dynasty of the geography bee. And she was the winner for 10, 15 minutes. She was the winner. Meanwhile, the dynasty people, and they're wonderful people, by the way, the dynasty people were making phone calls because they believed that there was a mistake in the final question. So they were making phone calls. They came in 10 minutes after my daughter has the medal around her neck. As you can see, I should have gone to therapy for this, but I didn't. Okay. <laughs> they come in and say, well, it wasn't done right. And now we have to sweep the confetti off of the stage. We have to stop the world. And they took the medal off of my daughter's neck, replayed the last thing, and then went Katie lost. Now you would think as a pastor, as a master's degree student in theology, an ordained minister, you would think I would have said to my wife at that moment, we receive all things from the hand of an almighty God. This is what I said to my wife. You let them take the metal off of her neck? I mean, can you imagine tonight at the Super Bowl? There's a winning team. They bring out the stage. Confetti falls from the ceiling of the, wherever they're playing. They hand the Lombardi trophy to the owner. He makes a speech. The head coach holds the Lombardi trophy. The winning quarterback holds it. And then the referees come in and say, no, no, no. We got to replay the third quarter. That's insanity. That's what happened to me. I mean, my daughter. They handled a lot more godly than I did. That's silly, sort of. But we live in an Ecclesiastes world. Life is painful. Life is short. Life is unjust and terribly confusing. And we would do well to have that expectation and understanding, not to depress us, not to walk around and say the sky is falling, but to get a realistic view 
of what we are dealing with. We live in an Ecclesiastes world. Now, there's a second resource that uh, the writer uh, talks about, and we see this in verse 15. And this resource is this. Even in an Ecclesiastes world, we can find joy in God alone. Even in an Ecclesiastes world, even in this broken, painful, mixed-up world, we can find joy in God alone. Verse 15. The writer says this. I commend joy, for man has no good thing under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. What the writer is saying here is he's commending joy. Now, he says, eat, drink, and be merry. He's not talking about get a glass of wine, eat good food, and, you know, ignore the pain of life. He's not saying that. What he's saying that is that you need to learn to find joy in this life. And I think he's saying two things. On the one hand, you can find joy when you eat and you drink and you enjoy the work that God has for you because, what does it say? Through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. There is a way to look at life and even in the difficulties, even in the difficulties, if you can think about the good things God has given you, it balances out the difficulties and you can have joy in those. And there are some of you, you half, you know, half full people, right? Or half empty people right? Negative people. It it might be good for you to jot down all of the blessings God has given you over the last month. The little ones, the big ones, the medium ones, and remind yourself, yes, you've got these other difficult ecclesiastic life problems, but you have a whole lot of blessings. That's part of it, but I think it's deeper than that. Because this text talks about fearing God, because this text is going to talk, and we're going to get, with, get to that in a minute, and because it talks about uh, receiving everything from the hand of God, understanding God's uh, you know, sovereignty, I think he's saying something much deeper. He's, yes, he's saying that the good things in our life are blessings from God that God has given us, but I think he's ultimately saying that all joy comes from God. And there is a way to get all of your joy in God plus nothing else. If God truly is the most beautiful, the most powerful, the most amazing being in the world, and if you know him and he knows you, you can find satisfaction and joy in him even if everything else in your life is in shambles. But I don't do that, do you? Oh, I mean, I'm pretty good on Sunday morning. I sing all the songs. You know, blessed be God, he's the greatest, you're awesome, you're amazing. I walk out of this parking lot and a couple things go wrong and all of a sudden my joy is gone because I am not trying to find my joy and satisfaction in God alone. I want, I love God, yes, but if God doesn't give me X, Y, or Z, I can't be joyful. See, it's not God alone. I need God plus X, Y, or Z. And I think a lot of us in this room would do well to think about what is your X, Y, and Z? What are the things that if God doesn't give you those things, you can't find contentment and satisfaction in him? It's all about God. And John Piper writes this. He says, if you don't feel strong desires for the manifestation of the glory of God, in other words, if you don't root your entire identity and hope and contentment and joy in God alone, It's not because you have drunk deeply and are satisfied. It's because you have nibbled so long at the table of the world. Your soul is stuffed with little small things and there's no room for the great. 
C.S. Lewis talks about this. God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. C.S. Lewis also said, don't let your happiness depend on something you may lose. And this is the real problem, is it not? We're told that we live in an Ecclesiastes world. That's the first resource to understand that. But then what we do, instead of putting all of our eggs in one basket, God, finding all of our joy and satisfaction in him, we want God to give us X. We, we need it. We need it. Our family needs to work right. <laughs> Good luck. Right? Uh, I, I, my job has to progress. Well, I mean, how, how much control over that do you have? I mean, I have counseled dozens of people in this church over the last 10 years who walked into the office on a Monday morning and found out the job that seemed to be secure last week was gone. And you're going to put your joy in that? You're going to put your joy in your health? Hey, it may make sense when you're 20. The older you get, you don't put a lot of hope in this thing. This thing's, it's it's, it's scary. Where do you find joy in a broken world that's fleeting and temporary and painful and unjust if you try to find any of your joy in anything other fundamentally than in God himself you are finding joy in something that you can lose quite quickly so that's the second resource let's go to the third resource Third resource is this. In an Ecclesiastes world, we can rest in God's sovereignty. In an Ecclesiastes world, in a world that's so uncertain and so fleeting and so, uh, so confusing and so unjust, we can learn to rest in God's sovereignty. Look at verse 1 in chapter 9. He says, But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. What the writer is trying to say in this fleeting, transient, unpredictable world that doesn't work right, you can trust your entire being to the hand of a God who is working out his plan exactly the way it needs to be worked out, and you can trust him and rest in his sovereignty. Now, I know this isn't easy to do. Right? If it was easy to do, we, we, we could shut it down and we could, you know, we all, it's just not easy to do. To trust God in the midst of this Ecclesiastes world. I love what C.S. Lewis says about something like this. He says, if you want a religion to make you really feel comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. We're to put our lives in the hands of a good and sovereign God, trusting him with all the things that happen and to rest in that. Now, the problem is, well, we kind of rest in it sometimes, but the reality is for a lot of us is we spend a whole bunch of time trying to control our Ecclesiastes world and try to control things that we have no control over and we make ourselves half crazy. Those of you who've ever gone to an Al-Anon group, right? I've, I've had experience because I've counseled some folks who have struggled with uh, addiction. And so I've gone to an Al-Anon. An Al-Anon group is a support group for friends, for people who have friends and family members who are in addiction. 
And so I've, I've, I've gone to some of those meetings, very, very helpful. One of the interesting things that they say all the time, and they say this, again, these are the friends and family members. We all have a friend or family member that's struggling with addiction. And it says this, they say this all the time. We repeat this over and over again. I didn't cause this problem. I can't control it and I can't fix it. Now that's wise advice. Because if you've ever had a family member who's addicted, you will go half crazy trying to help them, trying to rescue them, trying to get them out of wherever they are. You will become crazier than they are if you don't be careful. And if you don't realize, I didn't cause this fundamentally, I can't fix it and I can't control it, you'll become a nutcase. But we do this for all kinds of things, do we not? Parents, how many times are you trying to control your kids through external behavior modification? It's not going to work. I mean, if they're three, it will work. But if they're 13, uh, good luck. Try it and come talk to me. It can't be done. How many times do we worry and fret about something in our workplace, trying to manipulate something that's completely out of our control? How do we we deal with our spouse and we're, we're, we're struggling in the marriage and we're trying to get them to do what we want them to do? We're trying to control. We're trying to manipulate the world. We believe crazily. I can fix this in my own power. I can control it. Or some of you go internal and say, well, the reason the problem is, is I must have done something wrong. I need to fix myself. But you're still saying you can control it if you could just fix yourself. What does the Bible say here? If you're going to live well in a broken world, you have to learn to trust God alone. To trust the good and the bad that as God allows to come into your life and believe and trust that he knows what he's doing and he's got a plan that's working out and just believe it and trust it and act as if God is working and solving the problem in his time the way he wants to do it rather than you try to manipulate everything and fix the problem as if you were sovereign. Then a little experiment has changed my last month. I stopped watching and listening and reading about all political news. Oh, it's liberating. I don't know what's happening now. Don't tell me. I don't want to know today, okay? It's amazing. Because I think part of it is I was reading about all these things. I was just getting very angry and frustrated. It's crazy what's going on. That is nutty down there, okay? In so many different ways. It's crazy, but I can't control it. And I, well, I guess I'm a voter, so maybe I caused it. But I didn't vote for all those people there, so it can't be all my fault, right? And, 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 and I can't fix it, and I can't control it, but a lot of my emotional energy was being involved in it as, as somehow thinking if I got frustrated enough or I got angry enough about it that maybe something would change. Nutty, crazy. I've now given it over to God. I've actually prayed for the problem more than, it, more than I've worried about it. Are my prayers working or is it still bad? All right, I'll keep praying, okay? I'll just keep praying. See, one test of whether or not you're a person who's resting in a sovereign God is take the time you worry, take the time you try to control something that you can't control, take the time you're trying to fix something that you don't have the power to fix, Take the time you worry and fret and compare it to how many hours you're on your knees praying about the very same problem. And you'll be able to tell if you're resting in a sovereign God or not. That's the third resource. The last resource 
is that in an Ecclesiastes world, we have to learn to fear God. Go back up to verse 12. It says, though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well for those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before the Lord. Now, you know, when you read this, you say, wait a minute. You just told me that in Ecclesiastes world that bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people. Now you're saying if I fear the Lord, it will go better with me. And if I don't fear the Lord, it will really go bad. Well, both of those are true. It is good when you fear the Lord, it will go better, but it may not go better in all the ways that you think it ought to go better. Life is still Ecclesiastes' world. It's hard, it's painful, it's confusing. But what the writer here is saying, I think, is you, in Ecclesiastes' world, you need to learn to fear God. And this balances, in some sense, the, the, the third point there that we had about resting in God's sovereignty. It balances it because resting in God's sovereignty does not mean you're passive in dealing with the Ecclesiastes world. Fearing God means I am learning to understand who God is and what he wants me to do so that I can respond to God, who should be the source of my joy, who is the sovereign God, so that I can handle and live well in this Ecclesiastes world. Fearing God means I'm going to orient my life around what God is, who God is, and what he wants me to do and how he wants me to respond to this Ecclesiastes world. Now, again, this is a big problem, I think. Because often when we get in a difficult world, in the Ecclesiastes world that we live in, we try to control other people, or we try to think that the problem is out there, and if we can just fix these people. But the reality is there's only one person you can deal with, and that's you. By God's grace, you can learn to fear God. You can learn to respond to God more consistently, more comprehensively, in all the ways that he wants you to do this, even in a Ecclesiastes world. Read a helpful book uh, a couple months ago. It was called "Maybe Maybe You Should Talk to Someone." It's a counseling book. It's not written from a Christian perspective at all by Lori Gottlieb. It's I think it's on the New York Times bestseller list. But what's interesting, she's a therapist. So she talks about her therapy that she does with different couples and individuals. But then she also goes to a therapist herself. So she talks about the, those inner relationships. It's a very interesting book. But one of the things she talks about is that oftentimes when people come into counseling. They are not asking the counselor to help them change. They are asking you to help somebody else change, right? She was talking about marriage counseling. You got a couple in here. Well, the husband doesn't really want to change. He wants the counselor to change his wife. And the wife doesn't want to change. She wants the counselor to fix fix his wife. And that's the way we are, aren't we? We live in an Ecclesiastes world. We see that it's broken and we want God to fix these people and that person and that, my job, my, my family, my kids, my spouse, this person, that person, rather than focusing on the only person by God's grace that can change is you and you need to learn to fear God and learn to respond to this broken world the way God would have you respond. That's not easy. I mean, C.S. Lewis said, if you want something more comfortable, Christianity is not the way to go here. What I think we read here are wise words that are realistic. I mean, what these resources are saying is, uh, the first resource is, realize you live in a broken world, in an Ecclesiastes world. 
set your expectations correct. Secondly, you need you need you need you need to learn to you need to, to, to learn to fear God, okay? That's what we mentioned third, uh, fourthly. You also need to learn to rest in God's sovereignty. You, you also need to, to, to find joy in God alone. Now, what this means, what the text is saying is something very difficult, but something obviously true. And that is, when you live in an Ecclesiastes world, you can have a pretty bad life. It's painful. It's unjust. Uh, things are happening that are not good. It's, uh, it's confusing. You don't understand it. But at the same time that is happening, you can find joy. You can rest in God's, God's sovereignty. And you can learn to fear God. In other words, it's not incompatible to be pretty miserable with what life has thrown you, but to still have joy in the midst of your misery, to still have deep confidence in God, even though your life isn't going the way you want it. You can have a, a, a grow in God and, and learn to, to respond to God well, even though many things in your life are frankly so difficult and painful. You can be in abject pain, but have joy. You can do both, and that's the way the world it's the only way to operate. Christianity is not saying if you fear God and rest in the sovereignty and you, you, you learn to, to find joy in God, you're going to have a happy life. No, you may have a very difficult life because you live in a difficult world. But you can find joy. You can have confidence in the sovereignty of God. And you can learn to fear God and become a very different person with the adversity of this Ecclesiastes life. It's not easy, it's not simple, but it's what we need to pursue. One more thing about Ecclesiastes. Solomon, I, I think is the writer, I think that's what Matt thinks as well. He mentioned that, I think, last week or the week before. Solomon mentions the eternity maybe twice in the book. Certainly at the end of the book he does. He doesn't mention it very often. It, it does not appear to me that eternity is one of the resources he's using very much to help you get through this painful world. We know from Romans 8 that we would compare our present suffering with the future glory. That's all true. You can do that. But what Solomon is focused on is this world. In this world, you've got to realize it's difficult. You've got to learn to find joy in God alone. You've got to rest in his sovereignty. You've got to learn to fear God in a more comprehensive way. Let me pray for us. Dear Father in heaven, I thank you for your word. It's not easy sometimes. It speaks, it shoots straight with us. It tells us we live in an Ecclesiastes world that is painful and difficult and unjust and fleeting and confusing. But it also tells us there is a way by God's grace to find joy in God alone, to rest in his sovereign plan and to learn to fear God in deeper and more comprehensive ways. I pray that you would help us to do that by your grace, for your glory, that we would live lives well, even in this Ecclesiastes world. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.